The popularity of psilocybin mushrooms has exploded in the last few years. Not only are laws relaxing in many cities across the country, but cultivation best practices are being codified and shared online like never before. Using mushrooms at different doses makes for very different experiences. A microdose is intended that you don't feel it at all, while a half to a full gram makes for a fun day of exploration. And of course, you can keep going up in dosage from there to have a very powerful human experience. Anywhere along this range of dosing, though, can change the trajectory of your life because mushrooms have such a profound impact on brain function. But we really don't know why. And isn't that odd? Mushrooms have been used by humans since the beginning of recorded history, and yet they have been taboo and barred from research in the modern scientific era. But happily, those challenges to research are coming down. This isn't to say that we know nothing about how mushrooms function, it's just that most hallucinogenic mushroom research has not been approved up until now, and scientists who were doing the research during the dark days were shunned if they talked about it. If you want to learn about cannabis health, business, and technique efficiently and with good cheer, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. We'll send you new podcast episodes as they come out, delivered right to your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. Also, we're giving away very cool prizes to folks who are signed up to receive the newsletter. There's nothing else you need to do to win except receive that newsletter. So go to shapingfire.com to sign up for the newsletter and be entered into this month's and all future newsletter prize drawings. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I'm your host, Shango Los. Today, my guest is neuropharmacologist Miyabi Shields, Ph.D., Dr. Shields is co-founder of Real Isolates, which, ironically, focuses on the importance of secondary plant components and synergistic cannabis blends, so essentially whole plant medicine. Miyabi received their PhD in pharmaceutical sciences, focusing on the biochemistry of the endocannabinoid system from Northeastern University in 2018. Miyabi has authored or co-authored six peer-reviewed publications and presently has a patent under review for a novel fungus and plant extraction method. Miyabi also has a substantial list of honors and awards, including a 2016 International Cannabinoid Research Society Predoctoral Research Award. Their TikTok channel, at MiyabiPhD, has 180,000 followers and is where I first met Miyabi. Today's episode is really special. I have not found this information available anywhere else. During the first set, we will describe the interrelated body systems that are stimulated by psilocin and how these systems interact at a chemical level. The second set is all about dosing thresholds and the mechanics of tolerance. And during the third set, we focus on specific applications for this knowledge and how to effectively use psilocybin mushrooms to improve your health and life. Welcome back to Shaping Fire, Miyabi. I'm so excited to be here today. I'm, you know, it's really gotten to be fun to have you back a few times and we clearly get along and chat so well. I've gotten to the point where I'm not, you know, I, I, I mean, I still get nervous before I record most of these shows because I want to get it right, you know? Um, but I'm so comfortable with you and we have such an easy time chatting. Like I was just excited to get together and chat with you today. There, there was not the, uh, the, the, the kind of nervous anxiety. So, so I'm stoked that we've gotten to that point. 
<laughs> totally. I feel like we just have so much in common and in what we're interested in. And I'm really, really also just excited to touch on these topics. Uh, you know, I'm super passionate about molecular pharmacology. And I think these two things don't often get talked about together. And I'm excited to uh, to dive into that. Right on. So um, I think we should start this show off with a little preempt because, you know, you and I came up with the idea for this show from us just chatting as, as well, now friends. And uh, we're going to be going back and forth between um, you know, historical scientific papers, new scientific papers, and I guess what I'd call like, like, uh, informed conjecture on your part. Cause you're like, you're a pharmacologist. You're, you know, you're one of the experts in the field in this area. And some of your, some of the stuff that you're going to say today is, you know, we haven't been allowed to study yet. And I think it's important for people to understand that, you know, you're qualified to make these educated guesses but you're going to you're going to kind of let us know where the hard science ends and your conjecture begins right Definitely. I mean, we are going to be entering into a space of abstract theory, which is that we know about these systems and we know like certain facts about how the systems interact with one another. Um, but we don't know like how that could directly be extrapolated into the human brain because the human brain is so complex. At the same time, we have all of this information from the general public and people who have reported and written and shared all of these experiences activating one or both of these systems. Um, and so we're going to be like kind of piecing through the big gap between those two spaces. Right on. Cool. So with that said, let's get right into it. So um, I understand that when we consume a psilocybin mushroom or, you know, uh, we might call it a psilocybe mushroom if we want to talk about, you know, the species, but that's a mushroom that has psilocybin, the chemical in it. So a psilocybe mushroom has psilocybin in it. And once it's in the human body, it's not actually the psilocybin which creates the, 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 the reaction in the human body. It's actually psilocin. And so a psilocybe mushroom has psilocybin in it, which our body converts to psilocin. And so it's the psilocin that's the active ingredient in the end for us. So would you explain that process? Because I've never actually heard it explained clearly, um, how our body changes the psilocybin into the psilocin. So it's actually really similar. It's, it's pretty similar to decarbing cannabis. The difference is that our body is very efficient at changing uh, psilocybin into psilocin. And um, basically, the molecule psilocybin has a phosphate group on it. And a phosphate group is this like very negatively charged, like bulky... Uh, piece of the molecule. And that group does a couple things. It prevents it from easily crossing into the brain. It also prevents it from binding to the receptors. And all of the effects are felt when a molecule is able to bind and activate a receptor. So that phosphate group changes the shape of the molecule, right? It's this big, bulky, negatively charged, like, 
piece on the edge of it. And so psilocybin is not active, but our body contains an enzyme. Uh, an enzyme is like a little machine that does a chemical reaction. And the, our body takes psilocybin and turns it into psilocin by taking away that phosphate group and leaving behind just an oxygen and a hydrogen or a hydroxyl group. And that's what makes it active. So psilocybin is actually what would be called a prodrug. In pharmaceutical sciences, there are quite a few prodrugs, actually. Um, I believe aspirin is an example of a prodrug, which is something that goes into your body and then becomes activated by the body. So it's just like a different class of molecules, and they're not active on their own. They become active when our body either, in this case, takes off that phosphate group and then removes that big, bulky negative charge and allows it to activate the receptors. Okay, so so once our body has removed that group and, and it becomes this uh, more... I don't know, digestible, or that's probably a bad choice of words, but um, a usable uh, psilocin um, that I had, I had not heard that pronunciation of it. I'll start using that. Um, what does it go and bind with? Because, like, you know, the other times you've been here when we've been doing the endocannabinoid mechanics uh, uh, series, we're always talking about the endocannabinoid system, right? And and we're going to talk more about the endocannabinoid system in second set. But what is this psilocin molecule looking for to connect with? Also, quickly, I don't know that that pronunciation is right or wrong. I think it's kind of like tomato, tomato, okay. and people prefer to pronounce things the way that in my in my opinion some of these things are just pronounced the way um, that you've heard other people pronounce them uh, but back to your question um, what do they activate so they activate the serotonin system and serotonin system receptors there are so many of these and if you have ever seen the molecule it is really really similar to serotonin um, serotonin is a tryptamine. It's in a class of molecules that is created from the amino acid tryptophan, and they have a very distinctive shape to them. And psilocin is almost identical to serotonin. They're very, very similar. And so what you were saying before, um, instead of calling it like digestible, um, what I would say is that psilocin like is a puzzle piece that fits, it fits into the puzzle better after the phosphate group has been removed because it's trying to fit into the same spot on the receptors as serotonin. And it's the similarity in those shapes that allows it to bind to it. So uh, psilocin, psilocybin doesn't bind very well to any of the receptors. As we mentioned before, it doesn't fit, but psilocin uh, binds really well to many of the serotonin receptors. I've heard it been um, called a pan agonist before pan mm. meaning everything, right? Uh, but it doesn't bind equally to all of those serotonin receptors. It does favor some over the other, specifically in terms of like psychedelic psychoactive effects. Um, it's been linked mostly to the serotonin 2A receptor. It's a sub-receptor type. I believe there are 18. There's there's quite a few different types of serotonin receptors. We don't have data for every single subtype of receptor um, on psilocin. And I think the only one that I saw that it, it does not bind well to is the serotonin 3 subtype receptor. And that receptor is actually a completely different like type of switch. If you imagine these receptors are like 
on and off switches uh, in the body that, that start all of these domino effects. There are these different types of, of switches, right? Like, I guess if I'm going with this metaphor, there's like a regular light switch that you see. There's like a, a dimmer switch. There are like those metallic on and off switches. There's switches that are just buttons that you press on and off. And the serotonin three receptor is a different subtype than all of the others. And I think that's, in my opinion, probably why it doesn't bind as well to psilocin. But in terms of the the activation, um, otherwise, it, it seems like psilocin activates almost all of the other serotonin system um, receptor subtypes, which means that it mimics serotonin in the brain. It's interesting, too, if it's a pan-agonist, and to use your light switch example, it kind of makes me think of like when you go into... Um, like a big auditorium or something, you'll see as you enter, you know, often there'll be like a string of like seven or eight light switches for like different parts of the hall, right? And I, and I imagine psilocin just showing up in the human brain going, let's party and just like flick them all on, you know? <laughs> um, is, is the serotonin um, receptor the only variety of receptor that that psilocin is connecting to i mean as we know when you when you take you know hallucinogenic mushrooms your brain just like lights up right when you know we know it as a first person experience but we also know that when they when they put people in you know mris when they're when they're using it and stuff that are and, and or similar and people's brains are just like lit up um are there other um, types of receptors that accept psilocin as well, or is it mostly just in the serotonin group? So from what I've read, it's mostly just in the serotonin group, but the fact that it's all of the serotonin subtypes is what makes it very, very unique to that activity. Um, I, I think it, here's another thing that I'm unsure about is, um, so a lot of the literature in the scientific, the previous scientific literature focuses on serotonin. I'm not sure that every receptor subtype has actually been tested because often you only see what you're looking for. And it's not, I'm not positive that it's been, you know, ruled out that it wouldn't interact with other receptors. I think the only one I know for certain that has been ruled out that I saw was the dopamine D2 receptor, because that's one key difference between serotonin and LSD is that LSD does activate the D2 receptor and sorry, not serotonin, um, psilocybin and, psil and psilocin do not activate the dopamine system, whereas LSD does uh, activate that system partially. So that's the only one that I know that I can speak to um, for certain that hasn't been like ruled out. But I, I think that in terms of like, are there other, there's, it's kind of a trick question because um, are there other things that are in the mushrooms that could be activating other systems? That is very, very possible and also unexplored. Hmm. All right. Um, so because you study the serotonin system so intimately, you've got a different perspective than just about everybody else. And I would like to hear your thoughts on how rare and neat it is that that this one molecule lights up so many serotonin receptors at the same time, right? Because by, by you saying that, it suggests to me that that most other molecules would not 
light up so many of the different serotonin receptors like how cool is that like talk to us about like the rarity of that and 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 why mushrooms are unique because of that so i think the most i think one of the most interesting things is this contrast from from my background in pharmaceutical sciences it's the contrast of um you know, synthetic pharmaceuticals that target the, the serotonin system, all of them kind of are structured around avoiding the serotonin 2 receptor family because they're trying to like avoid the effects. And it's, it is rare. Uh, in, in terms of, of how strongly it activates it, it's rare. I know that there are other natural products out there and other um, naturally occurring molecules that do work upon the serotonin system, but they don't do it with such like veracity or, or potency. Like it's, it's a very potent interaction. Um, and the reason for that is because it's very, very similar to serotonin. And another thing that's interesting about psilocybin that I've always wondered um, is its purpose. I guess I've always just wondered about its its original purpose in the mushrooms um, because it clearly must be doing something for them as well. And it's this is something that's like far outside. But in terms of natural products, you know, these molecules in these plants and in these fungus, they they are serving a purpose for those living plants and living funguses as well. And there's this big, um, there's this big like homology or similarity between all of those molecules in the plants and in funguses and in bacteria and in other living things. And then in all of the molecules, like inside us, inside our brains and bodies and like circulating around in our blood, causing signaling systems and immune system responses. And I think it's amazing that living things produce molecules that are so comparable and so active on the human systems. And that's just, it's always been really magical to me. It's been a magical thing with cannabis and the endocannabinoid system. And I think it's magical with the serotonergics as well. I think there's an evolutionary link there. Yeah, I would have to agree with that. And you know, you know, you calling it magical is one of the, you know, least scientific things I've ever heard you say, but it's also <laughs> it's also like really true, right? I mean, there are reasons why humans have um put mushrooms on a on a spiritual, magical, otherworldly pedestal because the effects that it has on the human brain are like literally mind blowing, right? And so, um, and it's beyond our present um, scientific knowledge. Though we're we're getting able to research more of it now. But but historically, like if you don't know what's how something functions, it's magic, right? And so, that's not really an inaccurate term. No, and there's and it's it's also not inaccurate that there is still so much unknown left in the world, even with the amount of science that we have. And I, I, I love science. I'm, you know, science is my, my passion. But one of the things that I learned from it is just this giant, you know, giant unknown that is still there. And in terms of like spirituality and the, and that level of unknown and that level of faith there, we're not, we're not at a place yet where we actually can say we have a big understanding of it. And in, in the research on psychedelics, they use this word sometimes uh, in ineffable, 
which means like you can't describe it in words, I, I believe is the definition. And that is something that I think is really fascinating about specifically the serotonin system, um, also the endocannabinoid system and how they work together, but specifically linked to serotonergic psychedelic experiences is that it can create feelings and experiences that are ineffable. They're mis they're mystic and magic and spiritual and deep. And we have yet to be able, because we can't describe them because they're ineffable, it's very, very difficult to study them. But the fact that that comes from these molecules that are also from a living thing, part of this planet is just, it is magical. And yeah, I, I love um, I love describing science that way. And I think it's, it seems like a hypocritical, like, um, maybe not hypocritical, but it seems to be like, it would be in contrast to itself. But I've always said that, um, in terms of merging my, my scientific passion with my spiritual beliefs, I've always said that both, both science and spirituality are ways of embracing and understanding this like giant unknown in the universe. And there's just, there's just so much unknown. And I think that's one of the things that exploring, and I'm so excited to see as we can like open up research and explore these, you know, this interaction with the serotonin system more. I'm excited to see what we find. Um, and I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if we don't just find even more unknown. <laughs> Yeah, amen. And I'm going to go one more. I'm going to go one more step into this unknown magical spiritual before we get back to the hard science. And that is, um, you know, this this idea of an ineffable experience comes up all the time when talking about DMT, dimethyltryptamine, uh, the experiences that humans have on on significant doses of that drug are so beyond human regular experience that um, it's it's really cool that that whole new descriptors have evolved when talking about DMT and the experience and, and how it changes and rewires the human brain. Um, it, it demands the development of first new vocabulary to decide to describe it if, so that humans can share their experiences. And then once it gets in hand, the hands of like scientific researchers like you, then, then that kind of potentially sloppy um, new magical vocabulary that people use to describe it then demands new specific scientific vocabulary and understanding to describe it at a scientific level. And um, I think that this kind of um, growth of the ineffable drug experience becoming more... Um, malleable by humans where we can like talk about them and understand them more. I think that we are right at the front of this, this huge explosion of this kind of learning by humans everywhere because we're all getting e easier access to these, these plant medicines and, um, and, and scientists are more encouraged to research them now for whatever reasons. Yeah, it's just so much more available and there's so much more communication in the community that helps. I mean, I think it's incredible that so many people can have such similar experiences. Also, DMT is very, very similar um, molecule 
to psilocin. They are almost identical because DMT is almost identical to serotonin and they're, they're very similar in that way. But um, what I was describing earlier with psilocybin turning into psilocin, when you remove a phosphate group and you leave a hydroxyl group, just the OH, if you were to remove that hydroxyl group, that would be DMT. Oh. And they're, they're incredibly similar molecules, but then they have these different effects. And then the community and what I was mentioning earlier about how we have all of this information from the community and from people who are actively, you know, using and using these, these molecules and then reporting on their experiences and their, their comparable, their similar experiences and that ineffable, um, you know, that, that ineffable experience or that mysticism experience, it's also given a third name in, in scientific literature called oceanic boundlessness. And that, um, you know, that entire like, experience is linked to actually better outcomes, like better health outcomes. And it's, it's in, to me, super interesting because essentially I equate that in, in some way. This is, this is like my understanding of it is that, that's equated to me with like a spiritual wellness or something that is ineffable. It's not something that we're quantifying right now, but we can say that if you have that mystical ineffable experience, or if you have something like that, that there is a significant chance that it increases your health outcome, which is a physical quantitative response. And so that is just a piece down this road of let's whole like mind body connection that, I think, um, you know, is under is under researched, I would say, even in all the things that I've read, and this is one of my things that I'm super passionate about, we're just scratching the surface on understanding the connection between our mind, our bodies, and then how we view that connection to the world and the rest of like the life that's on this planet. Beautiful. I love how you put that. All right, so let's let's bring us back in um, for back to the the hard, harder science. Uh, that was a good. That was a All good, right away uh, from the tangent. Yeah, that was that was a good tangent. But so let's bring it back. So so on on the during the endocannabinoid mechanics uh, show uh, series that we've been doing together, um, you mentioned kind of um, uh, as a passing thought that um, mushrooms interact with the endocannabinoid system too, which was originally what gave me the idea for for this episode. Um, you've already explained to us very clearly how the the um the the psilocin molecule lights up so many of the serotonin receptors after that particular group is stripped off to stripped off it um i'm curious how um this the psilocin molecule interacts with the endocannabinoid system as well so there's two different ways and it's it's like an indirect way. So the first one is that the 2A, the serotonin 2A receptor, which is the one that's been linked to um, the psychedelic experiences, like that receptor, when you activate it, actually leads to an increase in endocannabinoids. That's one of the, that's one of the downstream effects of activating this receptor. And so in the first way you're, you're increasing your level of, of endocannabinoids, like after you take psilocybin, because it activates these receptors and that's part of what, what those receptors do. Um, the next way is a little bit more complicated and it has to do with the fact that 
we more recently have learned that these receptors are not operating by themselves. So when I say like the serotonin um, 5-HT2A receptor, you know, previously to let's say like 10 years ago, we were all assuming that that receptor kind of operated by itself or it operated with another version of the same receptor like serotonin and serotonin. And it was only more recently that we've discovered that these receptors can actually bind to another receptor in a different system and that that will change the way that it signals. And not much is known in terms of how it changes this signaling and what the downstream effects of this are. But what is known is that the serotonin 5-HT2A receptor does bind to the CB1 receptor, which is the main endocannabinoid system receptor and the receptor that's responsible for the therapeutic effects or most of the therapeutic effects of cannabis. And so that piece of it is less understood, but is there. There is some population in the brain of serotonin 2A receptors that when they are being activated by psilocin will probably be attached to a CB1 receptor, at least in part, like they exist together in the brain cells and will come together and operate together. And when those two receptors are operating together, their signaling can be altered. And we don't really have a a great um, tangible grasp on how and what that does. But we do know that it affects the endocannabinoid system because the CB1 receptor is the main receptor for the endocannabinoid system. Okay. Um, let's take one step back for a moment. Um, I think I probably uh, should have started the set with this, but would you give like a just like an easy thumbnail explanation of what the serotonin system is in the human body for, for folks who may not be familiar with it? Okay, sure. Yeah. The serotonin system is one of the best known like neurotransmitter signaling systems in the brain and in the body. We talk a lot about serotonin making you happy. I think that's usually one of the main, um, one of the main associations that people have with it. But serotonin is a molecule and the serotonin system, just like the endocannabinoid system, is made up of the receptors and the enzymes that work upon the serotonin molecule. And serotonin controls a lot of very, very important functions. And this is where my interest originally came to the table is that the serotonin system and the endocannabinoid system actually have like a huge overlap in the things that they control and how they work together. And they're localized in some of the similar areas in how they like modify this control. Um, One of the most important ones being like the brain and the gut or the GI tract interaction. So serotonin just like the endocannabinoids, is a signaling molecule. And the system itself is all over your body and controls a a huge number of things. That's why there's so many different receptors. And that's why they are, you know, expressed in different parts of of the brain and the body that help to to regulate these, um, these different processes. So that sets up my next question. Great, because I was going to follow up with, you know, are are the serotonin system and the endocannabinoid system like standing next to each other at at equal levels of complexity and control or does the endocannabinoid system c- control slash 
balance the serotonin system because when we talk about the endocannabinoid system we're all talk we're always talking about how it's the the body's natural thermostat and if you've got a system that's running hot it'll cool it down and if it's running if it's sluggish it'll it'll pick it up is is the serotonin cycles is the serotonin system one of the systems the endocannabinoid system modulates or are they are they are they like two different cooks in the kitchen Sounds like there's a lot of overlap, so I'm not really sure how you're gonna answer that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a complicated answer. I I usually say that it's it's a relationship. The the best metaphor I have for it is probably marriage. I think it's like a marriage. They both um, have things that they take care of on their own and together, but neither one of them almost ever operates without some form of feedback from the other system. Um, so like for an example of this is like I mentioned earlier, if you activate the 2A, the serotonin 2A receptor, you end up with elevated levels of endocannabinoids. So that's an example of the serotonin system modifying the endocannabinoid system. On the flip side, the endocannabinoid system is capable of modifying levels of serotonin, um, is capable of modifying the res- the the density of the serotonin receptors. So it goes the other direction. And they, they fulfill very different roles while they are also modifying the same um, like overall purpose in, in the body. So they work together sometimes, they work against each other other times. And it's, it's incredibly complicated dance, I think. <laughs> Hmm. All right. So, so we're talking about the, the complexity between these two systems and how they're getting turned on by, by psilocin. And, you know, we're usually talking about the endocannabinoid system and, and whole plant medicine, right? Because both you and I are very much whole plant cannabis advocates. And I know that mushrooms have their own terpenes. Um, are there reasons to make sure that we take a whole mushroom or an infused tea instead of isolated psilocybin or or, yeah, they're probably psilocybin crystals because like crystallized psilocybin is becoming much more available um, as people have have made best practices for that extraction process. And I know that a lot of people tend to want to avoid eating the flesh of the mushroom because uh, it upsets a lot of people's stomachs. And so like some people believe that you should eat the whole mushroom. Some people say, you know, since it's all water soluble, you do it in an infused tea and then you can leave the flesh of the mushroom, you know, in the strainer and then some people just go for the crystal because they see it to be more of a pure easier on the stomach experience and i don't think there's been a whole lot of actual research on this yet except for like you know individual psychonauts doing it um but as far as like the brain chemistry part of it you know is there is there a justification for whole plant mushroom I think that there is, but I also, you know, there's not a lot of research on the different molecules that are in the different strains of these mushrooms or even just in, in the in the main strains. So in terms of like the active compounds, yes, like psilocybin is the active compound in, in the mushrooms. It's been identified, but there's going to be a lot of other things present in the actual living mushroom. And I I think that like the difference between like 
the psilocybin, there's a, a pretty much a perfect analogy here between that and whole full spectrum cannabis products and like say like a rosin press or something that is like extracted partially purified um, versus then like isolate or or distillate and I think you know similar to, to cannabis I think that there are advantages and disadvantages to each um each version, there are certainly advantages to isolated forms of things because, uh, for one, it's it's reproducible, right? Like, as opposed to whenever you have a living, um, whenever you have a living thing producing, you know, a large number of of products, there is the chance that they will. It's probable that you would get different effects, but I would argue that that's also a positive um, once you are once you can understand it, which we are, I think, scratching the surface of of doing that. Um, I do know that there are just so many things in all mushrooms, not just psilocybin mushrooms that are worth investigating that haven't yet. Um, there are tons of like different types besides even like its own terpenes. Actually, I recently read a paper where they found molecules in mushrooms that activate the endocannabinoid system, wow. which makes them cannabinoids. Um, these are not psilocybin mushrooms. They're different mushrooms, but oh, okay. it's, it's interesting because it's, it could exist in the psilocybin mushrooms as well because we don't actually have a ton of information on on what that what that looks like and on isolating those compounds and then testing them against the receptors um the order of operations would go first like taking everything out of the mushrooms and then kind of separating them out into like types of molecules and then like how many of them are present and then testing those individually um, against each of the receptors to see what is going on. Um, and I, I haven't actually seen a ton of information on the smaller, what would be like the rare molecules that are, that are in um, the mushrooms, but there's certainly many, many that are there and probably many that have yet to be investigated or even discovered. What a great time to be a, you know, a, a college or, or post, um, postgraduate student who is both a psychonaut and a scientist. Like I remember back in school, you know, there, there were like the, the, the odd folks who you knew were doing, drug stuff in the lab when I was in school, um, but it was very shush-shush and very frowned upon, and the, and the school could not find out. But now there's, like, full-on programs. What a great time to be a scientist psychonaut. Like, all this stuff is open to folks, and we don't know it yet, and yet now we're allowed to research it. I think you just can't deny, you can't deny that there is therapeutic benefit, because there's there's therapeutic benefit, and there's also you know, it's the same thing that happened. The revolution with cannabis, I really think, helped pave the way for this to occur. It's like something that was so stigmatized, and that still is, and I think that we still have work to do, but, you know, it it has really changed. The culture around cannabis has really changed, and it's been a lot of work by a lot of people who've come well before me, and you're one of them, and has done a lot of work in changing this this stigma for the better. And I think that that's paved the way because we are all able to see now, or a larger population is able to see, like, wow, there's a lot of therapeutic benefit that has yet to be explored. Um, everyone's more open, I think, to that, and I I think it's really really exciting because you can't deny that there's therapeutic benefit here 
and that understanding it will only help us to like reduce the risk of the negative effects. Right on. Fantastic. All right. So um, let's wrap this up and go to commercial. During the second set, when we come back, we are going to talk about the thresholds for uh, different dosages for mushrooms and how that impacts the mechanics of the brains at different thresholds. Um, You are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is pharmacologist Miyabi Shields. There are a lot of good people launching new businesses in cannabis, psilocybin, and other psychedelics, and it's a very strange time for us. In the same moment that psilocybin mushrooms are illegal at the federal level, they are becoming increasingly legal in states across the country. These businesses leading the way into the future of plant medicines require specialized legal representation by attorneys who have depth not only in litigation, mergers, and acquisitions, but also in psychedelic and other plant medicines. Greenlight Law Group has been empowering cannabis businesses since 2014, and as the market has diversified into psilocybin and other plant medicines, Greenlight has been right there, evolving with their diverse clients to provide legal expertise with a high level of legal acumen, creative strategy, and precision that comes with an intimate and specific understanding of both business law and plant medicine. If you are a business owner trying to navigate the layered local and national drug laws on your own, you are at risk of fumbling. These confusing and quickly changing laws complicate everything. Greenlight Law Group is ready to help you when hit with a lawsuit, or because you were shafted by a vendor or business partner, or simply because you want to stay legal and could use some preventative guidance before cultivating a controlled substance as an entrepreneur. Greenlight Law Group is a collection of folks who care profoundly about their work, and I know this is true because I know the folks from Greenlight. There is a huge difference between a big legal firm who has decided to start representing a few drug companies versus working with a collection of high-integrity, passionate lawyers who are personally interested in new plant medicines and firmly believe in their power to heal. Contact Greenlight Law Group today and learn more about the services they can offer your industry-leading cannabis or psychedelics company. That's Greenlight Law Group at greenlightlawgroup.com. For 20 years, Humboldt Seed Company has been family-owned and providing reliable, high-yielding seeds originating in Northern California. While the current trend is to slap one super male into a line of hype strains, Humboldt Seed Company continues to breed with precision and care by doing large sifts and back crosses to emphasize the absolute best traits that a line has to offer. This kind of breeding takes time, talent, and space to work. No matter what kind of aroma you are particularly into, Humboldt Seed will likely have something you'll love. If you love fruit, you can choose from banana, mango, apricot, papaya, blueberry, blood orange, melon, and lemons across their various strains. They have all gas, glue, and classic sour diesel lines as well. Of course, there are the Heritage California strains like OG Kush, Jack Hare, and Headband. And their award-winning blueberry muffin is one that delights just about everybody's palate, especially when concentrated. Humboldt Seed Company is proud to bring to market the infamous Freak Show Cultivar 2, which has a great THC high, but looks so much like a fern that some folks can't even identify it as cannabis. It's a plant that really needs to be seen to be believed. If you're looking for well-balanced CBD seeds, Humboldt Seed Company can turn you on to CBD strains that actually have flavor, like the dill and pepper terpenes of Willie G's Lebanese Landrace. 
Whether you are looking for regular, feminized, or autoflowers, Humboldt Seed Company has the gear to make this your best growing cycle ever. Visit HumboldtSeedCompany.com today to check out their line of vigorous genetics, download their catalog, and find out where you can pick them up. You can also check out their Instagram at The Humboldt Seed Company to check out their gorgeous flowers and the extraordinary freak show plant. Humboldt Seed Company. Let them know Shango sent you. Sometimes the topics I want to share with you are far too brief for an entire Shaping Fire episode. In those instances, I post them to Instagram. I invite you to follow my two Instagram profiles and participate online. The Shaping Fire Instagram has follow-up posts to Shaping Fire episodes, growing and processing best practices, product trials, and, of course, gorgeous flower photos. The Shango Los Instagram follows my travels on cannabis garden tours, my successes and failures in my own garden, insights and best practices from personal grows everywhere, and always gorgeous flower photos. On both profiles, the emphasis is on sharing what I've learned in a way that you can replicate it in your own garden, your own hash lab, or for your own cannabinopathic health. So I encourage you to follow at Shaping Fire and at Shango Los and join our online community on Instagram. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I am your host, Shango Lose, and my guest today is pharmacologist Miyabi Shields. So in the second set, we're going to be talking a lot more about uh, specific dosing and thresholds for dosing. And so we're going to start off by uh, defining some of these terms we're going to be using. Um, if you just simply Google, you know, mushroom dosage chart, you'll find a lot of different um, representations of this chart. And, you know, there's a little bit of variability, but generally, uh, the doses we're going to be talking about today fall into, uh, five different categories. Um, the first is the microdose. And, and while it's true that, you know, how much is the right microdose for you is something that you need to work out for yourself. Generally speaking, uh, people discuss it as being 0.1 gram of, of the mushroom itself. And, you know, um, you know, I prefer 0.08. Some other people may, uh, you know, have their own number. But generally, when we're talking about a microdose, we're talking about 0.1. Um, then there is a term I actually learned from Miyabi uh, when we pr were prepping for this, which is uh, a museum dose, which is a little bit more than a microdose. You're actually looking to have, you know, a little bit more going on in your head, um, which is going to be about more like like 0.5 of a gram, so about a, about a half gram there. Um, and then there is, uh, the mini dose and the mini dose is more like one to two grams. So you're definitely going to get some, you know, psychoactive activity, but, uh, you know, you can, you can probably still be around people. And, um, but then there's, then there's the macro dose, which is going to be anywhere between three to four grams generally. And at that point, you're going to be having a significant response. You know, you're probably going to be more likely to avoid people. Um, and, and, you know, you'll be, you'll be seeing, um, you know, sacred geometry and nature and, and you're putting together a whole bunch of things. And, um, you know, often, often, um, People can tell that you're tripping uh, by, by this point. And then above the macro, above three to four grams, um, you know, you know, above four grams, you know, people go five, six, seven grams, sometimes more, which is 
epic. And the, and the Weezer generally call these like heroic doses or God seeing doses, something like that. So, um, so you can get yourself more familiar with this scale by simply, you know, Googling mushroom dosage chart. But, but those are the general, those are, that's the vocabulary that we're going to be using today. All right. With that set, so Miyabi, like, why do we often experience permanent or at least, you know, longish term temporary changes to ourselves after taking mushrooms? Because we, we have the experience during that, the, after we take it, right? But, but it feels like things change for us for a while and there's like this afterglow. And then eventually it, it, it feels like certain, certain attributes wear off, but certain learning stays. Um, so, so I'm, I'm kind of wondering if there's like a half life for, for a mushroom experience as far as like the neurology goes. So I think in terms of the after effects or the after glow effects, I think, in my opinion, those are directly linked to molecules or effects that the that the psilocin molecules had that are still in your system actively in terms of the more longer term changes and effects that people can feel. Uh, I think that's a that's a different that's a different piece. But what what both of them kind of point to and what's unique about the serotonergics and activating the serotonin system seems to be this disruption in what would be like the default pathway. And all of us have like we we all have a ton of subconscious default brain activity that we're going through and that our brain just does automatically for us. And we can try um, to consciously think of things from different perspectives. But I mean, I think most of us have had a situation in in our lives where we've thought through something a million different ways and we can't seem to find a way through, right? Or we, can, we can't approach the problem from any more ways than we're aware of. And a piece of that comes from our brain being stuck in some of these like similar pathways. And so one of the reasons why I think that there are these lasting effects has to do with with just the disruption of that pattern, the disruption of the same patterns happening over and over and over again, um, and the creation of new patterns. And sometimes I think that in terms of like an after effect and some of them staying or some of them leaving, it could have to do with these pathways still being freshly activated. There's a saying that neurons or so neurons are brain cells, but brain cells that fire together will wire together. And when a brain cell is activated and it activates another brain cell and it makes this like new circuitry or this new path, there are actual physical and chemical reactions between those two brain cells that facilitate them firing again. And it isn't until they are kind of weeded out that they stop firing. Uh, and I think that when you are activating your serotonin system, you know, with mushrooms. And it, as we mentioned in the first set, it's a pan agonism or it's an activation of all different types of serotonin receptors all over the brain. You end up creating a lot of new pathways or a lot of new signaling um, systems and you disrupt this, this default. Um, I've heard it described as a, uh, I think it's called the default network or a default mode. I've heard it described that way. In terms of, of disrupting that, you're kind of taking um, your brain out of that that routine and like showing your brain or ha like 
facilitating your brain going down these other pathways that are new avenues to approach things and, and new perspectives. Um, so that's, that's one piece of it. And then, and then the other piece I think is something that we touched on a little bit earlier, which is mysticism or oceanic boundlessness and, or at the higher, do- at the higher doses and thresholds we were talking about, um, changes in your perception of yourself or your ego, uh, usually called ego death, right? Or ego disillusion and changing the way that you perceive yourself and your identity and your place in the world um, and how that can have a, a, a huge lasting effect on the, on your perspective and how you approach like the rest of your life. Um, so I'm not sure if that was too broad of an answer for, for your question. No, that was, that was, that was good, but I'm also going to follow up with something very specific, right? So, so taking that as being true, would you describe what what is happening at a very specific biological chemical level when we we all talk about these you know mushrooms help um create new neural paths and um mushrooms help deepen your neural paths what does that mean in um mechanically in the brain like that that that's that's the storytelling way of saying it what's the specific chemical way of saying that so this the chemical way of saying it is is that um if you imagine like your brain is like a network right like your brain is a network of transportation and things are going to and from um you know, the stronger and more often, so the more often like two brain cells will fire together, the stronger that connection will be. And in terms of the the biology and the chemistry of that, it actually strengthens it in terms of like, it will physically create proteins that will link themselves together that are like little Velcro proteins. It will become a bigger and stronger like surface area or synapse like area. There are multiple ways that your body can make it so that that connection happens easier. It's fast and easier. It's like the equivalent, I would say, of like having a dirt road versus like a freeway um, or a throughway where there's just like tons of lanes and tons of cars are moving and there's no lights or anything. Um, and the more often that you use something or some pathway, the more likely your brain is to turn that pathway into a freeway or a throughway. And that when you're when you're in a, a pattern or a habit or just actually as we go about our lives, our brain is constantly trying to find the most efficient way to activate those same pathways that it does all of the time. And so when it, when you're saying that when you take a, a mushroom and it, and it changes this neural pathway, it, it promotes neural growth and it like deepens these pathways, what you're saying is that the molecule activates these serotonin receptors. Then when it activates those serotonin receptors, it causes a new pathway, a new domino effect to occur. And that when this domino effect happens and you have this this new pathway being opened up, it deepens this connection between that otherwise wouldn't be there between these two brain cells because it's almost like a false connection. It's, it's simulating or it's mimicking what would happen if serotonin had been released between those two cells. Does that? Yeah. And so, um, and so, but when you say, uh, this, this pathway is being deepened, um, chemistry wise, 
you're saying that more of these Velcro-like meshing proteins are being formed, and so it's like having a a a thin copper cord connecting things versus a a big fat copper cord or some other it's like your your bandwidth is increasing along that path yeah and and your brain cells are all attached to usually they many of them have multiple connections and it they're constantly in flux like changing changing these connections although as we get older we do it less and less like in general uh, it's it's often referred to as plasticity mm-hmm. in general our brains become less plastic as we get older and so we start to only we start to only strengthen these connections that are currently being used. And it's not always like the, the proteins that um, are like the Velcro molecules. It could also be like the levels of receptors that are present, the levels of enzymes that are present or transporter proteins that are present. Um, there's a, a few different ways. It's, I mean, the body is very, very um, complex and in this amazing way, there's a lot of like, there's a lot of different ways to do the same thing and they all support each other. Um, and so when, when I say that, like when you're, when you're disrupting that pattern, you're activating new pathways and you're, you're kind of simulating, um, maybe a new interaction that wouldn't have otherwise happened because there wouldn't be serotonin there. I, right. I totally the, follow. So, so actually, there's like a whole series of processes that happen. It's not like one thing happens to to make the the neural net uh, more robust. It's actually making these vel- velcro proteins. It is uh, setting out in new directions to make the neural network more complex and have more redundancies. It's um, I don't know. I don't know what the other ones would be, but the it idea is it's a bunch chain- of other. Yeah, it it could be even changing the gene expression of certain receptors or certain factors in the cell because these I mean I won't I'm not going to go into way too much detail on this part but it's these receptors like th- there's different classes of them and and we know so much about what they do but the the signaling pathway when they're activated will go and it it can take this one thing called a G protein and it splits up into three other things. And each of those three pieces that get split apart will go to a different part and do a different activity. Um, and it's, it's incredibly complex and it's, it's beautiful. And in my opinion, um, and there's, there's so many ways in which they end up being closer, um, tied to, to one another. And it's, it's similar to, um, yeah, I guess it's, it's a, it's a rounded approach that it happens in general it's this is not actually unique to any of the receptor systems it happens in general when you activate systems in tandem and when your brain is is forming these connections all right so let's move forward and let's talk about the differences in um the different results in in the neural network based on these different threshold doses that we set up at the top of the set. So, um, because we know that like when when we apply these different doses, we are trying to do different things, and if we are getting different results, um, that's telling me that that the brain is firing differently on these different 
um, amounts. So, so let's start by talking about microdosing. So we're talking about, um, uh, uh, you know, we'll just use 0.1 since that is generally, um, taken as the, as the baseline microdose. So at, so, so more or less the, 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 the main protocols that people follow are, are either like five days on, two days off, or three days on, one day off, which, you know, are, are wildly similar between the Stamets and the Fadiman protocols. One way or another, you're taking this small amount of 0.1 for several days in a row and then you're taking a little break and then you're doing it again what do we know about what is happening for this repetitive microdose versus what we'll talk about in a minute which is like when we take you know a, a mini or a macro dose what what is the uh, what's going on mechanically in our brain that makes the microdose um, efficient or okay, effective? So there's a, yeah, so there's a there's a couple there's a couple of different pieces of this one. The first the first piece is actually what happens at a different dose to the receptor, and I'll just pick the five HT two A receptor since that's the one that's classically associated with the effects of mushrooms. That receptor, um, when we're talking about like how a molecule will attach to a receptor, um, there's activating it, there's inactivating it, and then there's like everything in between. There's all of these ways in which you can do it, but in in just like the most general way we can say it, um, psilocin activates the five HT two A receptor. But it does that for a certain amount of time, and there is a statistical probability of it binding to the receptor. So let's say psilocin is in the body, like you're taking a microdose of it. There's not that much. So there's not a large concentration. And so the statistical probability that it will bind to the receptor is less which is part of how it makes it less active because there's less of them that will be bound to the receptors causing these effects. So that's one difference is the number of molecules bound to these receptors um, as a result of the actual way, like smaller amount that's, that's present in the body because this is true for all receptors, um, all receptors and the interaction with their with the molecules that activate them, whether that's you know drugs or molecules inside our bodies, that um, interaction is an equilibrium, which just means that it's a balance between what is there and and what is not there. And so, the more of any of the drug or any of the molecule that you have, the more you're going to push that equilibrium to having the molecule bound to the receptor, and there will be more and more of them bound. So that's the first difference. Um, in terms of the microdose, you have like a very low amount. And so you probably don't have all of your serotonin receptors bound to psilocin. Um, there's like, it's highly likely that it's only a, a partial number of them at any given time, because the dosage is lower. Um, and then that leads to differences in the downstream signaling because when the receptor is activated, as I mentioned earlier, it starts this really long signaling cascade, and most of the time it ends up with a number of changes, but those changes are additive, right? So if there's one receptor that's it's happening and then another receptor, um, that will be different than if there's only one. I follow that. Um, is there a does the variable that you're doing it so often add something because like certainly macro doses which we'll talk about are you know have their own special 
you know, benefits. But uh, I'm curious about the fact that taking this small amount five days in a row does 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 hitting that same note again and again and again is there so like some kind of like like training that is taking place or or when it's that often you're you're seeing reactions in other systems or something um there's got to be something to this um to doing it so often Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up because I totally forgot about it. That was my second. That was my second piece that I was going to say. Um, the the second piece of it that is different is that you are doing it regularly. So on the first end, you're only doing a very low level activation. It's not. It's probably not all of the serotonin receptors, right? And then the second difference being that you are doing it regularly, even regardless of the pro- the protocol. It is. It's regular um, and it's it's pretty consistent. So in this case, in the microdosing case, if we're going to compare it to what your body feels like is happening, your body feels a little bit like you just have a little more serotonin in your body all the time because you're doing it regularly, right? So your body then does have um, what is called a homeostatic change or a it's a... Um, it's a reaction. All of our bodies are constantly balancing what is happening today and what happened yesterday with what is going to happen tomorrow. That's one of the main um, things that, that our body is responsible for doing. And so in terms of there being like low levels of your body thinking that there's low levels of, of serotonin or, or slightly higher levels of serotonin than are normally there, um, there are definitely changes that it will um, induce that are different from what we're discussing later in the macro dose. It's, it's different from then a very large scale uh, interaction with all of the serotonin receptors just once. Um, and it's actually the same mechanism or a similar mechanism to most of the like long-term um, like mental health medications also function based on this sort of long-term low-dose effect or homeostatic effect that your body changes over time, right? Like I think it's very common for um, mental health prescription drugs for you to be monitored over time because they don't take effect for a couple weeks and then it, you know it's it's a titration. Um, it's a it's a similar thing or it's a similar scale of an of an effect. All right. So, um, with the microdoses, um, we are uh, getting some binding, but not complete binding to all of the receptors. And the fact that we're doing it regularly, um, I don't know, I guess I could say creates new opportunities for the neural network to use its resources differently. Would that be a fair way to put it in layman's terms? Yeah, it, I think that's a great Explanation. I'd say that doing it regularly induces small changes in the brain as if you had slightly higher levels of serotonin all the time. Will that cause me to produce less serotonin? Like, will, will it leave you, like, like, if you stopped microdosing suddenly, would it, would it leave me in a serotonin-depleted state? Because the, the mushrooms have been f- using those receptors? I haven't seen any information that supports that, but is it possible that it increases the levels of like enzymes that metabolize serotonin? Um, it is, but I don't. I don't think I've seen anything that supports that it would leave you like with a depletion. Although there are some um, molecules out there that do, and that it's like documented that they do. Um, 
or they can have that effect. Like one of them, um, I'm thinking it is um, MDMA, and it does it does induce like a a change that, and this is at like larger larger doses, but um, it does induce a change that leads to like a temporary um, feeling of like depletion afterwards. All right. So let, let's jump up to uh, jump up the scale to macro doses. So now we're talking between like, you know, three and four grams roughly of, of the mushroom flesh. At this point, um, we're, we're not really talking about doing this regularly, like a microdose. We're going to we're going to take, you know, five days a week. This is more something that folks do, um, you know, semi-regularly or a couple times a year or once a year or this is more an event this is this is a ceremony for a lot of people unless they're just partying on it for most folks this is you know they are doing this to create meaning in their lives or whatever and um uh so we're we're not talking about doing it regularly but we are talking about doing a hell of a lot more of it so um what do you see from your perspective of the di- the differences between the macro and the micro experience that you just laid out for us i think that there's a it's clearly a big difference between activating all of <laughs> yeah. the, all of the receptors at the at the same time also because um so the other thing that i that I should mention now about the microdosing is that when you're at these lower levels, not all the receptors will be activated equally either. Like I mentioned, like some of them will be active and some of them will be inactive. Um, at the lower doses, it's way more likely that the psilocin molecules are only activating certain receptor subtypes that it's especially it's especially attracted to. Um, and then as you get into the higher and higher doses, it will start attaching to all of the serotonin receptors because there's so much there, right? That it's going to activate all of the different types and all of them at once and all, (laughs) all over the place. And this, you know, we've seen them in the, in the brain scans, you end up with these like beautiful brains that are just like completely lit up. And in this case, um, in terms of like the the big long term benefit in in the bigger doses, I definitely think that it is linked to the mysticism or oceanic boundlessness and or ineffable way of describing that that experience. Um, you mentioned that people do it to try to like fix something or to you know the set and the setting being really important. Um, you know, I think it's. I think it's interesting because I think about it as like if a problem or if a problem. Um, is like a mountain. One of my friends put this really beautifully. Like if you have a problem and and it's a mountain that you're trying to climb and you just end up trying to approach it from different trailheads, eventually like you probably will find a way to climb the mountain. But the problem is sometimes to a point in our lives where we've approached that same mountain so many times that we can't possibly see a different way to, you know, climb up that mountain. And we're just, you know, we, we don't have that option. And I think one of the main um, positive at- attributes of a big macro dose, which is just one time um, or way less frequent, is that you have this activation where you activate all of the receptor subtypes at, at the same time. And so you have a way larger uh, disruption in that default pathway, and you have a way larger um, activation of the extraneous others or new types of pathways, new perspectives and and new thoughts that you could then reintegrate. And, um, 
you know, take from that, take from that experience in a, in a different way. Do we have any idea what, um, what uniquely is happening when you activate all of those receptors at the same time? If, if a microdose is, you know, we're, we're pushing the button on some of the receptors. And so we're doing this kind of slow and steady wins the race kind of improvement for the neural network versus taking a macro dose where you're essentially taking all of the buttons on all of the receptors and just mashing the hell out of them. So, so you're, you're going from, you know, one person singing every day to suddenly this whole choral all singing together and the melody it creates something that is way more than the sum of its parts do we know what that is in the brain when we're taking macro doses is there some state in the brain that we achieve from mashing all of those receptors at the same time i mean we know how it feels right but i'm curious to know do we know what's happening like chemically in the brain that um, at the same time, we're having these these spiritual experiences. I feel like chemically in the brain, it's probably chaos. <laughs> it's like it's like you're activating every serotonergic cell, um, not just in the brain too. I mean, at the macro doses, like there's body effects, there's like stomach effects and, and other things. But but talking about the brain, um, you're activating and you're super activating all of the serotonin like neurons that then go on, they go on to activate other things, right? Like I mentioned earlier, um, that they activate and can, can modify the endocannabinoid system. But serotonin also plays an important role in the dopamine system. And it's originally, this is like an, an older belief. It, it used to be believed that serotonin and dopamine were like contrary to one another or that they, um, they were like opposites and they, they balanced each other out. And it's been the, the more and more that we've looked into all of these systems for that matter, not just serotonin, dopamine, and the endocannabinoid system, but specifically those three, um, they're very, very closely linked together. And so you have this massive activation of the serotonin system, but you're also going to have this massive downstream activation of the dopamine system and the endocannabinoid system. And in terms of, of scientifically, at, at my level, what is what is happening? I think from from my understanding of of what would happen to the receptors at that point is that all of them are doing all of their downstream signaling pathways at the same time. There is a massive overlap between some of the pathways being synergistic, which means that they increase each other, and some of the pathways being um, antagonistic or they they cancel each other out. Um, like for example, the the serotonin two A and two C receptors often are viewed as canceling each other out when it comes to how they affect dopamine. So all of this is kind of like competing and happening at, at the same time. Um, and what, what I think we know, at least one of the things that we're, we're learning, um, increasingly learning is that coming, coming out of this, like for the health benefits and where, where those come from, it appears to be linked to this feeling of of a deep uh, connectedness experience that is incredible to me that it's linked to a system in the brain or an, an interaction in the brain, um, but that certainly seems to be more profound at the higher doses. Hmm. 
Okay. Um, one more question on this track before we move on to the next topic area, which is, um, you mentioned that at the, the macro doses, not only are the serotonin receptors all being mashed on, but also there's all these other effects in the other parts of the body, including the endocannabinoid system and in the gut. And, um, you know, certainly we know that the bowels are lit up. Um, and, and, you know, breathing is impacted in some ways. Uh, certainly your muscle sets react to it. Um, can you talk a little bit about the, the non neural receptors that get lit by a macro dose and kind of explain to us what's happening in the totality of our bodies? Cause like mushrooms are a very yeah. whole body drug. Oh, yeah. So the the easiest thing I think to describe is the stomach one, because that's like very, it's, it's part of the process. Um, You have the most serotonin receptors in your gut and GI area and in your stomach, your stomach produces huge amounts of serotonin. Uh, And so activating those serotonin receptors, that's part of what causes that stomach upset. There's also other things in in mushrooms that I think add to that effect, but a piece of that, you know, upset stomach feeling comes from activating the receptors that are in your gut and in your stomach. And other, like, otherwise there's this, there's this communication back and forth always between your brain and your body and between what is called like the peripheral or like your body's nervous system and then your central nervous system. So like one of the things it's like the, the feeling of like how you can have decreased pain or decreased, um, you know, like, like temperature regulation, even just decreased like sensory feedback in general, right? Um, a piece of that comes from this, uh, another disruption or a communication disruption between like peripheral and central. Um, and when you are flooding your body with a, a molecule that activates receptors that are, that are everywhere, um, and that are so expressed in your central nervous system and in the core of controlling these things. Um, and that's a piece of, what causes these the like whole effect or the whole experience is that there's always a feedback um, between what's going on in the brain and what's going on in the body, and these these little loops that our our body goes through they're they're regulated along the way in in many different pieces by these neurotransmitters, and so by taking something that mimics serotonin, you're modifying every piece of of that loop for those systems. Are there serotonin receptors throughout the body similar to endocannabinoid receptors throughout the body? So it's similar. I don't believe that they have the same exact profile of the amount. So both the endocannabinoid system and the serotonin system are expressed very, very highly in the brain. And both of them are expressed also in the GI tract. But the endocannabinoid system, I believe, is more in the fat tissue than the serotonin system is. I believe the serotonin system is also found more heavily in like the cardiac or the heart area. I, both of the endocannabinoid system and the serotonin system are all over the place. Um, but in terms of like how highly they're expressed, I think they have a slightly different uh, expression pattern. 
You know, I think that if you asked me, I would have said, oh, yeah, of course, there's serotonin receptors in the gut. I mean, yeah, of course. But but I think I also forgot that until you mentioned it again. And if if I'm think if I'm now thinking more holistically instead of, oh, serotonin receptors in the brain and I'm thinking about, oh, serotonin receptors in like these groupings all around the body, suddenly it makes a lot more sense why mushrooms activate so many different places in the body because um you know it's it's not that the mushroom has to have a bunch of different chemicals to reach these different places it's just that the receptors are are all over the place and i want to follow up on on um a, as you were explaining that you mentioned that that you believe that there are other chemicals in the mushroom that activate in the stomach um uh do you have anything more to say about that about what these other chemicals may be i mean i know that there's probably tons depending on the the strain of mushroom that you're looking at but one of the the class of molecules that i'm really interested in has to do with like sugars um mushrooms can produce and mushrooms produce these really complicated can produce these really complicated types of molecules that are like similar to sugar or like linked to sugars um i mean and then I'm also interested in very, very similar compounds to psilocybin or psilocin, that there are probably or possibly um, many similar other forms of of those molecules that share a similar shape and are just slightly different, kind of similar to the rare cannabinoids, right? So if you think about like the biosynthetic pathways that these mushrooms and that the cannabis plant, they, that the pathways that they go through to create these molecules... Um, they are done by enzymes, which are like little machines, like I mentioned earlier, that do chemical reactions. And those little machines are not always perfect. They can make mistakes and they can create like little off byproducts and things. And sometimes they just will create a certain amount of like little amounts of things. And, and so this is one of the differences between isolated extracts and like whole um plant or whole or whole whole, whole fungus. mushroom whole fungus extract. <laughs> yeah whole fungus extracts right um is that you're not gonna like eliminate any of those like mistakes or just like trace <laughs> trace amounts that are slightly slightly different right because um i mean this is like a an example you brought up earlier with dmt there's the different types um and that's kind of what you're when when people talk about the different types of DMT, I think there's like red and all these different like versions versus like the crystal, um, versus like an oil. You're, you're talking about like different, like slight modifications or derivatives that are present in the plant, um, in small amounts. They're in smaller amounts than the other, than the other molecules. And I believe that, you know, psilocybin or psilocin would be no different. I believe that there would be small amounts. And I'm, I'm not sure possibly it's already been found. I just haven't, I haven't seen it in the literature. But I, I think it's it's quite possible, or very very possible, that it's there and it exists, and that um, in all the different strains, um, it's that there are complementary molecules um, present, and that that's a piece of what's different between all of these different strains of mushrooms is what else is in there. It's not the psilocybin content that's different. Well, the psilocybin content can vary between these different strains of mushrooms, absolutely, but that they also have other complementary molecules inside of them. And I have like 
ideas of what I think that they could be, but um, I would be really, really excited to look at it, hopefully one day in the future. Right on. So so in, when comparing the microdose uh, permanence of change to a macrodose permanence of change, um, would you suggest that there's any uh, difference in permanence between the two varieties or two thresholds of dosages? Like if, if we talk about like the event, the, the, the benefits of micro dosing stay with us and then, and then perhaps some of their attributes fade away and that happens with potentially different attributes with a macro dose and potentially they, they, you know, some of them go away. Would you say that 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 the the fading of the benefits are like on par with each other, or that or that they they last differently? That's a super super hard question. Let's see. I I think I guess I would think that they're more just different tools, different tools for different uses and different advantages, right? Because um. On, on one hand, I think that there's a huge benefit and that, they, that a lot of people have experienced the huge benefit from a profound experience, right? Something that is life-altering and life-changing, but that is very subjective. And I know that I've read um, people's experiences with microdoses where they have had a profound experience f- for them on a microdose, right? Because everything in this world is is subjective, so I think that um, I think it's a very difficult question because I think so much of that has to do with the individual person, what they are seeking from this, and also maybe even just a little bit about their neurochemistry or their like specific neurodiversity. Because I think you mentioned at the beginning of this, um, there are different doses of microdoses for people who experience. Like certain people are sensitive, um, and that's going to be true for the benefits as well. Okay. So uh, one more thing I want to hit on before we, we go to the second break, and that is tolerance. Um, you know, we're all pretty familiar with cannabis tolerance and that um, when you're, when you're taking in uh, THC regularly, um, your, your receptors uh, can, can stay full up and, and perhaps even get lazy. But, but with, um, with, Psilocybin, um, if you take mushrooms on day one and you take them on day two, you're going to have to take more on day two. But from, from what I understand from the literature, it's not really tolerance. It's, it's, it's kind of like a different mechanism, but I have no way to explain it. So, so would you, would you kind of teach us a bit about, about what that's like to take mushrooms day one and then day two and the fact that you need more? What's going on there? Sure. So usually tolerance is uh, in reference to the receptors, which is why I think, um, why I think like usually this is a different form or a different mechanism of tolerance because when it comes to mushrooms or any of the serotonergics, it's actually linked to the enzyme that breaks it down, which is called monoamine oxidase. This enzyme takes the molecule and adds and, and makes it inactive. It inactivates the molecule. And when you, um, the first day that you would take mushrooms, like let's say your body has like five of these, en- of these enzymes to break it down. The next day your body would have like 
at 50, like tons. And so because you have so many of these enzymes, it would like immediately break it down. Uh, and that's, that's why it's a, it's a different mechanism because it's linked to breaking down the molecule into something inactive rather than being linked to changing the number of receptors that the molecule is binding to. All right. Um, and, and, and this last question, I, I just stumbled into this question, so I may not act actually act, ask it scientifically accurately, but you mentioned the MAOs. And um, uh, I re recall like back in, back in my college days, I was taking uh, St. John's wort for anxiety. And I remember uh, that, that uh, taking mushrooms was not having the same kind of effect. And I remember at the time thinking, uh, being told, oh, it's because the St. John's wort is an MAO inhibitor. And so, so taking MAO inhibitors, um, uh, lessens the potency of a, of a whole category of drugs. Um, and I don't even know if I'm asking that question right, but I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. So would you talk a little bit about MAO inhibitors? Yeah, it's actually very, um, it's very dangerous, and this is just a, a, something, a PSA, it's very dangerous to mix to different types of serotonergic um, molecules, specifically MAOI or monoamine oxidase inhibitors um, and serotonergic agonists, which is what mushrooms are. It's what LSD is as well, um, because there is something called serotonin syndrome that you can get if you overload the serotonin like system. And it's very, it's very rare and to, to be able to do that if you were just using one, but it's way more likely to happen if you were using more than one. So, okay, I'm going to stop talking about that now, but it exists this. Um, and it's more likely, I, I have never heard about that, that it would decrease your um, ability. Because in theory, taking something that is a monoamine oxidase inhibitor would turn that enzyme off, right? It would inhibit that enzyme. And so in theory, you would actually have more of the mushrooms present still. And actually, that's the um, premise of um, ayahuasca. Because ayahuasca, if you eat uh, DMT, it gets metabolized so quickly that you can't feel it. So that's why ayahuasca is a very complicated mixture, and it's different depending on um, the like person and place, so shaman who's creating it, and the and the tribe. It's different in a bunch of places, but the main ingredients that go into it are a um, monoamine oxidase inhibitor that then allows the DMT to not be metabolized. So I would say it's almost the opposite effect, but perhaps because you were taking St. John's wort, perhaps it was actually increasing the level of monoamine oxidase that was there because if it has an inhibitor in it, it has like this, um, reactionary effect in your body or the homeostatic effect that then your body upregulated it. So that's, that's possible. Right on. Cool. Well, that was, that, that was a fun aside. So <laughs> <laughs> let's go ahead and take our second short break and be right back. You are listening to Shaping Fire and my guest today is pharmacologist Miyabi Shields. Cannabis folks are innovators and problem solvers, and we like to make money. Have you developed a tool, technique, or plant that you want to protect and monetize? You'll likely want legal representation that is experienced, accessible, and shares your values. Plant and Planet Law represents a wide variety of clients who choose to respect the environment while pursuing their business goals. Have you invented a machine or gizmo that you're bringing to market? Did you discover a breakthrough environmentally friendly pesticide or fertilizer formulation that you're about to start selling? 
Have you bred a canvas plant with attributes not found anywhere else? Attorney Dale Hunt and his Plant and Planet team have established genetic patents in over 30 countries. Working to help entrepreneurs, scientists throughout the life sciences, Plant and Planet represents environmentally positive clients in cannabis and other botanicals, fungi, water purification, clean energy, emulsions, and medical applications. Plant and Planet helps people protect what they've created. If you are an early-stage company with an established idea and are in the process of fundraising, often the investors require intellectual property protections happen at the same time. Plant and Planet can be your sole representation, or they can integrate with your existing legal team and plug in their specialties. Plant and Planet is made of scientists, lawyers with a real passion for cannabis, inventions, and the environment. They have the scientific and legal depth to help you establish patent protections for your great idea. You don't have to go it alone. Friendly, qualified, and honorable legal representation is available to you. Contact Plant and Planet Law today to start the conversation. Email info at plantandplanet.com. That's Plant and Planet Law. Our clients make the planet better. As a business owner, you are incredibly busy. In reality, you are responsible for everything your company does. You've got so many responsibilities every single day that often you just don't have the time to really dig into your marketing as deeply as you'd like. You know there's more that you could do to reach out to new customers and encourage loyalty in the customers you already have, but you certainly don't have the time for it, and you're not ready to hire somebody full-time for that role either. For you, I recommend Blunt Branding. At Blunt Branding, Kirsten Nelson and her team are focused on improving your bottom line. You know, most marketing firms are excited to make your logo, packaging, and website very pretty, but they leave responsibility for improving your bottom line up to you. They don't want that kind of responsibility, but that's pretty much the most important part of marketing, right? Kirsten and her team will help you engage new customers, funnel them to your point of sale, whether it be online or a storefront, and keep them coming back to you and telling their friends. Now, if you happen to be a new cannabis company or an established company moving from medical to adult use in your state, Kirsten especially can help you. Not only is she well-versed in marketing and finance, but she totally gets cannabis, whole plant medicine, terpenes, heritage farmers, and the particular needs of startups. Check out what she did recently for Moontime Medicinals and Humboldt at MoontimeMedicinals.com. Kirsten and her team put together a whole brand package for them, built their website, and wrote their sales materials. No doubt, this is a paid commercial spot, but that does not mean they bought my opinion. I've worked with Blunt Branding on five projects now for various of their clients, and every single time they have done more than they have promised and over-delivered on results. I love how they generate new revenue and focus on that as the goal instead of just making a pretty logo. Similarly, every single friend I've referred them to has come back to thank me. And that just does not happen every day. Grab a pen and paper because the website address is coming up. If you want someone to implement marketing programs that feed your bottom line, give Blunt Branding a call. They will share proven techniques to increase your audience and generate sales while using cutting-edge technology solutions in the background that make all of this easy, automatic, and trackable. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash Blunt Branding to find out more. You can also click the link in our newsletter. Blunt Branding, marketing that makes you money. After you've caught up on the latest Shaping Fire episodes, do you sometimes wish there was more cannabis education available to learn? Well, we got you. Shaping Fire has a fabulous YouTube channel with content not found on the podcast. 
When I attend conventions to speak or moderate panels, I always record them and bring the content home for you to watch. The Shango Los YouTube channel has world-class speakers, including Zoe Sigmund's lecture, Understanding Your Endocannabinoid System, Kevin Jodry of Wonderland Nursery talking about breeding cannabis for the best terpene profile, Frenchie Cannoli's Lost Art of the Hashishin presentation, Nicholas Mahmoud on regenerative and polyculture cannabis growing, Dr. Sunil Agarwal on the history of cannabis medicine around the world, Eric Vlosky and Josh Rutherford on solventless extraction, and Jeff Lowenfels on the soil food web. There are several presentations from Dr. Ethan Russo on terpenes and the endocannabinoid system, too. While there, be sure to check out the three 10-part Shaping Fire Sessions series, one with Kevin Jodry, one with Dr. Ethan Russo, and one with Jeff Lowenfels. And even my own presentations on how to approach finding your dream job in cannabis and why we choose cannabis business, even though the risks are so high. As of today, there's over 200 videos that you can check out for free. So go to youtube.com forward slash Shango Los or click on the link in the newsletter. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I am your host, Shango Los, and my guest today is pharmacologist Miyabi Shields. All right, so here's the big finish. In the first set, we learned a lot about how the serotonin cycle interacts with psilocin and also with the endocannabinoid system, a little bit about um, how dopamine reacts as well. During the second set, we talked about the different uh, thresholds for dosage, the mechanics, and and how it works. During During this third set, though, we're going to talk about uh, some of the applications for this. Um, so, so I want to point out that this really isn't an episode about the spiritual relationship and communication psychological benefits of taking mushrooms. Um, certainly, uh, there is a lot to say about that, but we're really talking more about uh, physiological mechanics today. So, um, you know, uh, you'll, you, that, that information on the psychology benefits, the psychological benefits of taking mushrooms, um, you can pick that up elsewhere, or, or may, maybe I'll do a show about it in the future, but that's not really what we're talking about today. Um, we're going to start, though, Miyabi, with, um, I know that you're a big fan of taking psilocybin and cannabis together because they're synergistic. Um, will you go ahead and, and kind of explain why you see them as being such uh, such uh, good friends? Totally. I, I think that the systems are complementary and there's so much overlap and interplay between the endocannabinoid system and the serotonin system. And it's clear, it, it's interesting because there's almost no research on, that are done together on cannabis and mushrooms. And there's very, very limited research on on how the systems, when they're activated together, um, in humans, that is. But there is tons and tons of information out there in the real world community of people who use mushrooms and cannabis together. And in general, they are a potentiating or they're synergistic, which means that you can use less of both of them to achieve a strong effect or that they don't necessarily, um, you know, one doesn't necessarily just like strengthen the other, but that they complement each other in such a way that the therapeutic benefits can be greater when they're used together at smaller doses than when they're alone. And I think that, I think it's interesting. And I obviously understand why, because it's difficult to study such, it's complicated to study cannabis. It's complicated to study mushrooms. And there's so many molecules in both plants, but I think that it's incredible and worth talking about that their benefits can be used together. And that one of the main things that, um, 
people talk about is about how there are some negative effects to both cannabis and mushrooms and that in general you can limit those negative effects by using less of them in general using less of any drug is beneficial for you in the long term and yeah it's, i think that it's it's crazy and i would love to see more research on the synergy between the two and that it's it's very explainable in terms of how i mentioned earlier the re the actual receptors interact with, with one another and then the the cells in the brain and the brain cells that fire together also interact with one another it's in a way that that makes sense that they're complementary and that um actually it's been a recent it was a recent um paper that showed that if you use cannabis regularly, you have an increased number of those uh, receptor, the receptor dimers, the two receptors together. So the serotonin receptor with the CB1 receptor. How I was mentioning earlier, they come together and they signal um, differently when they're together. There is actually very preliminary, early, early evidence that regular cannabis use will increase the number of those two receptor subtypes together, um, which is just interesting because it's kind of pointing to or hinting at the idea that you can modify either system to be more complementary with each other um, or, or put it in a different balance, per se. Do you have any thoughts on, on if you're going to be using mushrooms at what point to start your cannabis uh, use as well? Would it be, you know, start before it comes on? Do you want to wait till it comes on? Are there, is there any mechanics going on there that we want to be aware of? Well, I think one of the biggest benefits has to do with the anti-nausea effects of cannabis. So that's a big, in, in terms of, in terms of like onset of using them together, I think that would be um, something like, Worth mentioning is that like mushrooms often cause an upset stomach and cannabis combats upset GI, upset stomach and GI issues. Um, one thing worth mentioning is that because they potentiate each other, because they work together that way, it is, you have to be very, very careful. And this is not something for the first time ever to do without considering what the dosages are and how they interact with one another, uh, because they certainly interact with one another in a way that potentiates the total overall effect. Um, one thing that I've found is really useful is that you can, because of cannabis, um, having a shorter duration of action, if you're smoking it or inhaling it or, you know, um, dabbing it, vaping it, it has a shorter duration of action. And so one thing that I think is useful is that you can almost use cannabis at, to like a, as a titrator or something that is a very subtle alteration of, of the effect. And this isn't, I mean, this is something that I've seen tons of people do. It's just, it isn't talked about. Um, and it isn't studied in the scientific literature. And I would, I would love to study it one day or for someone to, to study it, because I think that there are different benefits um, that can be obtained by using them together. So we know that cannabis is biphasic, um, meaning consuming some THC reduces anxiety, but taking more than your personal threshold makes it anxiety causing, right? Um, mushrooms also seem to cause both relaxation and can cause anxiety too. Um, I'm guessing that they're biphasic. This is why we focus so much on like mindset and setting, right? With all psychedelics. What effect will using mushrooms and cannabis together have in regard to anxiety creation or secession? 
Okay, so this answer is going to be entirely based on the experience from others that I've heard and from the theory of of what is interacting with these with these receptors and these molecules. Fair but enough. But uh, when a molecule is biphasic, usually it means that there's this opposing effect, right? At the second dose, you at a higher dose or a higher threshold. Um, it's possible that that second threshold that causes anxiety is caused by an imbalance in these signaling systems. And it is possible that that imbalance has to do with only activating one of those systems at a time. Um, from what I've seen in in personal experiences and qualitatively of others, in general, they can have a curbing effect on that anxiety um, effect when used together. Although it is also certainly true that it can cause, if you're unprepared or if there, there's other like environmental factors in your set and setting that it could go the other way. And so I think it's, it's hard to say like with certainty that there would be anything that would happen for certain for any specific person in that um, scenario in any scenario, but that I do think that it's possible that they can at least and to a certain extent curb that effect by having it be an activation of both systems at the same time, because they balance each other out Um while that while that's being said, I I don't think that we know enough to say that it wouldn't also at times have the opposing effect because it's definitely true that it, it could. Yeah, and this is definitely one of the experiences that falls in the uh, personalized medicine approach, right? Like, like you know, everybody's going to have to figure out what their own biphasic thresholds for mushrooms and cannabis are. You know, start slow and low, and and find your own, right? Um, and I and, I, and while we're here, uh, I appreciate the fact you giving me some of these answers to these questions that honestly the science doesn't exist yet, and the fact that you're willing to, you know take a professional guesstimate i appreciate your willingness to do that um, i mean this is all the ab this is all just an abstract idea at this point but there is some very real world applications that are happening and i think it's i i think we shouldn't ignore the fact that people do use mushrooms and cannabis together and that in in general there are unexplored there are unexplored um options here so we've been talking all day today about how um, mushroom psilocybin interacts with the serotonin system, which is one of the reasons why people turn to mushrooms for migraines, right? And it's amazing. I have heard so many different ideas from patients about why taking either low or large doses of, of psilocybin mushrooms helps their 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 migraines either stopping it at the onset or stopping it once it's already on or used as a preventative i mean i've heard so many different strategies and i don't know if any of them are better than the other but but from from your perspective um what do you see as far as the effectiveness that psilocybin might have in the prevention or cessation of migraines I think that there's so much evidence in both the endocannabinoid system and the serotonin system. Uh, so I mentioned earlier that when you activate the serotonin 5-HT2A receptor, which is the main receptor um, associated with psychedelic effects, that you will increase your levels of endocannabinoids as well. And 
for this one, this I think is more linked to the preventative, uh, but migraines are associated with clinical endocannabinoid deficiency, um, which is a theory by Dr. Ethan Russo. And it's, it's a theory, but there's a lot of evidence. Uh, there's a, a lot of evidence behind um, people with migraines and also fibromyalgia and IBS or irritable bowel syndrome having clinical endocannabinoid deficiency, having lower levels of circulating endocannabinoids um, in their body and having this be one of the reasons why they are sensitized to getting migraines. So in that, that's one possible way that I think that it modifies it. And then the other way is through the serotonin system. And actually, the like most or some of the most common migraine um, medications that are abortive or uh, that get rid of your migraines are tryptans. They're also molecules that activate the serotonin system. So this is actually a very, very similar mechanism to what the pharmaceutical agents have as well, um, although it's slightly different because the pharmaceutical drugs activate only one of the serotonin receptor subtypes. I believe it's 1B is the type or 1A, uh, but they only activate one for the most part of the serotonin receptor subtypes. And it's, it's a very, very different um, effects profile and can actually cause like rebound migraines. And there's, there's certain like, there's positive things associated with, they do work in abort migraines, but then there's negative things that don't appear to happen with um, psilocybin mushrooms. And I think that it's this, um, I do think it's a dual approach. I think it has to do with the effects of um, the 2A, 2C receptor, or perhaps the pan, pan agonism of activating all of the serotonin system subtypes, because uh, for both migraine and cluster headaches, there's a lot of really, really positive evidence of using um, mushrooms to either prevent them in terms of like a long-term usage or abort them. Now, I, uh, I know that you are not a medical doctor and you are not giving medical advice. So I'm asking this question specifically from what you are learning from the literature and from your own knowledge of how the neural network work works. Based on the, that information, is there one strategy for using mushrooms to uh, thwart migraines that seems like it's more likely to be effective than others? like, you know, um, microdosing for migraines or, or, or macrodosing for migraines or taking it at this point or that point? Like, do you have anything to add on that topic? You know, migraines are such a complicated disorder and they're a trigger disorder, um, which means that like once you, once you trigger a migraine attack, like there's a prodromal phase and then the, the pain phase. So in terms of like what the best um, mechanism is, I I really hope we have that answer in the long term. In the short term, I, I can say that I've known people who, I've known someone who's completely cured themselves of, of migraines using mushrooms. Um, and in this case, it was like somewhat regular. Um, so in that case, I think that for like somewhat regular use and like the microdose route of being able to use it more regularly may be beneficial in terms of like somewhat permanently altering um, the circuitry that leads to you triggering your, your migraines. Um, but I don't think that there is enough yet uh, to say, even just in, in migraines in general and what causes them, because um, a, a piece of this of migraines is, is vasculature or the, the blood flow in the brain. Um, and so, perhaps in that sense too, altering it somewhat chronically would be beneficial. Um, yeah, I, 
That's a really, really good question. And I, I honestly hope that I have an answer for you, like, you know, within the next, like, I don't know, maybe I'll give myself time the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Um, so um, I know that you are uh, very, very interested in inflammation. And and that is closely related to the serotonin uh, system as well. Um, are there strategies for using uh, mushrooms or mushrooms and cannabis together to help fl- fight inflammation? So I think that the the way that this involves inflammation or the way that mushrooms interact with inflammation has a lot to do with, um, there's a type of inflammation that's not like swelling or like redness or, or rashing. And, and this, ty- that, like, this type of inflammation is just like a systemic um, release of chemical inflammatory factors in the body and in the brain. And there's two places in serotonin where serotonin, I think, plays a big role in that. And the first one is in the GI tract, and the second one's in the brain. And inflammation in the brain can cause depression. And there's one specific subtype of depression that's caused by inflammation in the brain that actually leads to decreased levels of serotonin. And so in this in this case, this would be a way that um, you know, perhaps you can rebalance that or decrease the inflammation by supplementing with more serotonin. It's, I guess it's, it's unclear whether the inflammation causes the decreased serotonin or the decreased serotonin causes the inflammation or vice versa. But by rebalancing, um, the signaling in your brain, you can lead to a decreased, um, level of inflammation or the release of these inflammatory cytokines. Um, cause also in general, this is just a very, very large general statement, but in general, inflammation in the brain is caused by like stress and like that we could potentially by decreasing anxiety and stress then aid in our levels of systemic inflammation. It really seems that one of the one of the first benefits that people get from microdosing is increased resilience to anxiety and stress. Um, people who I meet that start microdosing, they're only a couple weeks in before they're all like, you know, life isn't getting me down as much anymore. Um, do we know what the um, the the mode of action there is? Like, what what why that's happening? I don't know if anyone, if there's ever been anything published on this, um, but I, my personal belief is that it has to do with this low level mimicking, like mimicking of a low level increase in your levels of serotonin that then kind of allow you to restructure that default and that, that a lot of people who begin microdosing for anxiety, right. Or for like managing stress, um, you are sensitized to those pathways that like lead to like negative thought loops and um, can spiral down into like negativity or, and it's, it's not easy to change your, your structuring of your brain that way. And I think that's, that's the like part of the um, this book by Michael Pollan, how to change your mind, right. Is that in many ways, um, you can use these microdoses as tools for restructuring the way that you process the things that you are and aren't stressed about, the level of stress that your body or your brain takes it to. Um, something stressful happens in your day instead of 
um, allowing it to go to this, this changes everything for the rest of my life. And, you know, and, and going down that entire pathway, um, making it more of a habit, let's say to stop that and, and only allow it to stress you out to the extent that is more manageable. It's, and that's not an easy task. That's not something that is, that's not something that is easy. It's something that takes a lot of conscious effort and, and work. And I think that microdosing is a tool to make it easier for your brain to like restructure to that task. Right on. So in addition to restructuring, there is just simply um, optimizing and and brain healing. And um, let's let's finish with this. Um, you know, we have talked many times on Shaping Fire about um, the use of cannabinoids, especially CBD cannabidiol, um, for its um, uh, neurogenesis benefits, meaning the creation of of uh, more uh, neurons, especially the uh, the dopamine excreting cells that, when lost, tend to lead to like Parkinson's syndrome and and things like that. And so, by taking by taking CBD CBD, we increase our brain's neuroplasticity, and because they, they, because of the neurogenesis, and now, and now today we're talking about the the neuroplasticity benefits from mushrooms and perhaps neurogenesis. Would you talk a little bit, just simply about how? Um, microdosing and you can you can add the cbd component if you wish just makes for a for a healthier younger functioning brain yeah so i think younger is an interesting that's an interesting adjective to use because in general when we're saying younger brain we're talking about more plastic or like less not finished is not the word. We're never finished. Our brains are always going to be changing. Um, but more like random thoughts and random connections and less like solidified and minimal connections. And the reason why, um, things like in, in general, when things go away or we lose, we lose certain functionalities, um, a piece of that has to do with our brain not activating those pathways anymore or those, or, or making those connections. Right. Um, and I think one of the things that, mushrooms help and that it, by activating the serotonin system in the way that it does, which is pan activation all over, um, you really are sort of like stimulating you're, you're literally, you're quite literally chemically stimulating a, a giant system in the brain that kind of just like jump starts and has all of these down, there's all these downstream things that it will interact with and that it will then activate, um, to kind of like, give a bunch of different new pathways a, a a boost or at least like a little activation. Um, and what that can do is it can start a, you know, it can start a bunch of other like next level, um, things that can lead to like eventually differences in the way, like your openness, I guess would be, um, one way of putting it, like how you were describing about having like a better way of reacting to anxiety. The the other thing I would say is like, is like openness in general and flexibility. And that those things are all generally speaking associated with being happier, which is also generally associated with serotonin. Um, so that would be mechanistically the way that I think that 
that this is working is that it facilitates and, and encourages new connections because it creates and like sparks these new connections um, that otherwise wouldn't have been stimulated because there would be limited places where serotonin would be released because as we get older, our brains um, are less and less plastic and we release serotonin in more and more specific areas or in pathways that have been, um, you know, kind of cultivated as opposed to introducing a new molecule that mimics serotonin that will activate a bunch of different pathways that otherwise maybe would not have been activated together. Wow, that's a really great explanation. It reminds me a lot of like lo- use it or lose it, right? Like as as we get older, if we if we don't stay physical, we lose some of our mobility and and our options become more limited, right? I that I can imagine that that would work the same way with a neural network too. If we're if we're not stimulating these these various networks, eventually we're doing the same thing every day and things are becoming a little more rote and we start to lose options because because some of those those neural pathways that that give us more mental options get pruned or 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 are are, are less deep, and um, so by using by 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 microdosing, we're just giving everything enough stimulation to keep them online. Yeah, they quite literally do get pruned. Our our brain cells look a lot like trees and. Yeah, they do. They, they look a lot like trees and they do quite literally end up, they, they're, the purpose of that is to be more efficient, right? And to, to deliver the messages down the same pathways faster and, and more efficiently. Um, but absolutely, no, that's, <laughs> that's a good, um, analogy to use. Right on. Well, Miyabi, thank you so much for joining me again. Um, this was everything I hoped it would be. And every time uh, we talk, I learn so much. And um, I get so much fan mail for you through my account. People really enjoying your ability to take these um, these pretty complex, uh, you know, biological mechanisms and put them into uh, examples that that anybody can understand. So um, so I appreciate you. Uh, uh, going down this path with me uh, about uh, mushrooms today, and, and and appreciate both uh, both your expertise and and you know good cheer with all this. Well, thanks so much for having me, and also for going down the the rabbit hole of abstract molecular <laughs> pharmacology, because there's there's definitely so much more uh, to be found out of this of this unknown. But I love. I love talking about this and that's why I love talking to people who are open to, you know, kind of approaching it from from different angles basically. <laughs> right on. So, if you dear listener are interested in knowing more about Miyabi, um there are a couple ways or three ways for you to do that. Um by far the best is to start with Miyabi's Instagram account because while uh there are other um social media accounts come and go, the Instagram seems to be pretty steady. And that's Miyabi PhD, M I Y A B E PhD, Miyabi PhD on Instagram. And then also,
also, uh, Miyabi has a gargantuan following on TikTok, you know, a six-figure following that you can follow as well. And and if you love Miyabi's uh, explanations, um, you're going to love them even more with like 3D models in their hands being manipulated. So um, that is also Miyabi PhD there on TikTok. Um, and if you are curious to know more about uh, Miyabi's day job, uh, you can go to... Um, the website for their company, Smokinol, and that's S-M-O-K-E-N-O-L dot com. Uh, one of these days, we'll talk about um, about uh, Miyabi's invention for extraction of cannabinoids from smoke. Um, if you are uh, interested in hearing more about mushrooms, mushrooms and cannabis and things like that, um, there are a handful of uh, earlier Shaping Fire episodes that uh, you can check out, going all the way back to Shaping Fire episodes episode 22 with Dr. Ethan Russo on treating brain injuries with mushrooms and cannabis. Episode 67 also with Dr. Russo on migraine therapy using cannabis and mushrooms. Uh, Episode 70 um, about cannabis, mushrooms, and terpenes for optimum health um, with guests uh, uh, Dr. Ethan Russo, Tony Verzura, Jeff Chilton, and Berner focusing on Chinese medicinal mushrooms rather than psychedelic ones. And finally, very recently Recently, episode 76 with Adam Bramlage comparing different psilocybin microdosing protocols. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you would leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news, exclusive videos, and giveaways. On the Shaping Fire website, you also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. Be sure to follow on Instagram for all original content not found on the podcast. That's at Shaping Fire and at Shango Los on Instagram. Be sure to check out the Shaping Fire YouTube channel for exclusive interviews, farm tours, and cannabis lectures. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Lose.